What's up, Energy fam? This is Justin, and welcome back to another episode of Wicked Energy with JG. My goal with each episode is to deconstruct the minds of today's energy thought leaders to uncover their framework and tools used in their journeys of providing energy to the world. So sit back, relax, and remember that everything you see around you requires some form of energy. Buddy, welcome back to another episode. I'm here with Christine Guerrero, owner of Brick House Capital. Christine comes to us with a wealth of knowledge and experience in the upstream space, working for companies such as Slumberjay, Chevron, Precision, and Hess. Uh, before starting her own shop, Christine, welcome to the show. I know you've got your stock tickers going on one screen. Who knows what in the other? You got your dogs around you. You're all, you know, all speed, no drag. Are you not? Uh, I'm definitely a type A. I mean, if anyone knows about e-colors, you know how you have like the the red and the yellow and the green and the blue, and there's all the different personality types. I used to always joke, "Well, I'm red over red." So, <laughs> okay. Go, are you good at them. Are you good at identifying people's colors when you sort of meet them for the first time, or are you into that, or do you just you just know yourself really well? Um, I mean, I know myself, but then it doesn't take too long of being around someone where you can see, you know, if they're more people oriented, you know, um, I mean, pretty much everyone always knows the yellows and the reds because they're, you know, they're just like so dominant with their talkativeness and, um, and their opinions. um, (laughs) That's true. I mean, it's easy to, it's easy to like pick them out. It's a little bit harder to figure out the greens from the blues. Um, because those are a little bit more introverted, they're data driven, they're quieter. Um, And and so, and so sometimes um, it can be hard to figure out whether or not, you know, it's like a dominant green or dominant blue. Understood. So who would you say you work best best with? I mean, you worked in the corporate world for so long. I mean, clearly you had to go through exercises and building teams and managing teams. I mean, who would you say you work well with? Um, I mean, I like result-oriented people, obviously. I mean, you know, it's uh, it, it's hard for people who are like type A's and reds to sometimes be pulled back, you know, because we are so go, go, go. I, I will say that the longer you work with people that are uh, more data-driven, and which I believe those are the blues, right? The data-driven are the blues. The, yeah. I mean, those are definitely the people that you want on your team. And and because, and you might have to like pull harder to get the information out of them, but they are the ones that are actually gathering and processing the, the majority of the information. So sometimes they can keep you from running into a building before it's about to explode, you know, versus the Reds. I mean, we're just like already running through the building. <laughs> yeah. No, that's like, I'll tell a lot of people, I'll jump out of an airplane and then figure out how to build a parachute on the way down. And yeah. it's, uh, yeah, I, I typically learn by, by hitting my head against the pavement pretty hard, which is okay. Um, but, you know, again, I'm excited to dive into your journey and then what you're doing now. Um, but before we keep going, I do want to make a quick announcement to tell everyone about my new sponsor, Inflow Control. Inflow Control is a technology company that helps oil companies improve the efficiency of oil production while reducing the industry's environmental impacts with their autonomous inflow flow control valve. This breakthrough technology improves oil production by reducing unwanted gas and water, which enables mature fields to be more profitable by supporting oil production from zones that would have typically been bypassed. 
This provides oil companies and its stakeholders with lower carbon oil and higher profitability. To learn more, click the link in the show notes or simply check them out on LinkedIn or at inflowcontrol.no. So Christine, getting back to you here, you spent years in the upstream space. And as someone who's been in the upstream space since I was 18, I can identify, I, you know, I, I think, you know, we have a lot in common, but I'm, I'm interested to hear your journey uh, and then what finally led you to jumping off into what you're doing now in the investing space. Yeah. So um, I've never been like a traditional engineer, you know, um, mostly because I, I like, I think I gravitate toward adventure. So, so coming out of college as a petroleum engineer, I kind of saw drilling as the most adventurous. Yeah. And I knew I wanted to go into drilling. Um, but unfortunately, when I exited university in 2000, there, there weren't a lot of drilling engineering jobs being offered up um, for the operators. So, so that's how I ended up working for Schlumberger. It's because even though I had interned with Chevron for three years, like every one of my summers, I had interned with Chevron as an as a intern. And, um, and, and basically, before I was starting my senior year, I mean, they had said, you know, yeah, I mean, you, you've interned with us all this time. I mean, obviously, you get first choice enrolled. And I'm like, well, I want to go into drilling, you know, and, and they were like, well, if you want a job, you're probably going to have to go into production reservoir. And I was like, or I'll just go work for someone else. And, and so <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's how I popped up at Slumberjay, you know, because they basically were promising me the world. You know, they were like, okay, you know, you're going to work in the field. You know, we're going to move you around to all these international locations, um, you know, uh, and, and, and so, you know, that's what I wanted. You know, I wanted to see the world. You know, I mean, I grew up on a, you know, on a ranch in rural Oklahoma. The school I went to from kindergarten to eighth grade had less than 100 kids in the entire school. I mean, I wanted to get out and see the world because yeah. I had grown up like in this real small town environment. And, um, and I just knew that there was, you know, there was more to be had. Um, and then also, so my grandfather, he had been the, uh, he had started the petroleum engineering department at the University of Tulsa. So, wow. so all my life, you know, going to my grandparents' house, I mean, it was like a museum because my grandfather would travel all over the world, consulting, doing seminars. He had students from all over the world that he would give him gifts. And there was just like cool little tchotchkes like all over the house. And, and my grandma like had a story with everything, you know, it was like, oh, we picked this up at this conference or we got this on this trip. And, you know, so, so really for me, I mean, growing up, you know, I just was like, you know, oil and gas, you know, like that, those are the doors that it can open up to, right? I mean, and even you, I mean, you're Canadian, you know, you're down in, in Texas, which is a pretty easy move. But, yeah. you know, I mean, if you wanted to work in other countries, I mean, you know that you could just go knocking on doors and eventually, you know, you could find a gig right in another in another country. And I mean, almost nothing else like really, um, really allows for that. Right. Yeah. Or at least not that I know of. So. So anyway, when I went to work for Schlumberger, it was because I wanted to see the world. They uh, put me in the Gulf of Mexico, you know, which. I, you know, and, and, and they told me, okay, well, you know, basically we're going to train you up before we give you an international spot. And, uh, and, and they had told me there were certain hurdles that I needed to achieve, you know, before I was going to get to go, you know, over, um, you know, get an overseas assignment. And, and basically within a very short amount of time, you know, I hit those hurdles and I was pushing, you know, to get an international assignment. And, uh, and basically, you know, they told me, 
well, our clients love you. You know, we can send you to rigs that we can't send other women to. Um, and, and mostly because I'm gritty, you know, I'm a farm girl, so I don't let these guys push me around. Yeah. And, um, and, and, you know, and even company men who, who basically at that point in time, like they had told Slumberjay, don't send any women. And, and Slumberjay would, would basically put me on a helicopter without telling me what was happening at the rig. And then they'd oh, send wow. me there. And, um, like, I mean, I can remember conversations I had with company men where they were basically like, well, you know, we're going to have to like kick you off the rig because we can't house you. You know, we don't have accommodations here for women. And, and I was like, well, you know, that's fine. I'm like, you can send me off the rig, but you're going to get someone who's not as good. You know, I'm like, I'm like, you can either deal with me and I'll be here and I'll do the job and, you know, it's covered. Or you can take, you know, your, your gamble, you know, getting someone who, you know, uh, isn't going to do it. So, and, and so uh, having confidence in yourself, I mean, that is one thing that people in the field, they respect. Yeah. You know, if you show weakness, you know, you're out of there. But if you'll like stand up for yourself and, um, and, and you know, be articulate and, and um, you know, and like I said, and just confidence. I mean, it's like, it's like key. So, mm -hmm. so, so, anyway, so, so Christine, I'm curious. So just to, on that point, where, where would you say you gained that confidence from? I mean, was that something that you grew up just, was it in your DNA or did you overcome a bunch of challenges as a child that gained you the confidence? I mean, where does that level of confidence come from? Um, I mean, I've just, I mean, it's probably, probably a lot of it is personality type. Um, like I'm the most extroverted, talkative person, you know, in my family, but, okay. you know, but also going to those rural schools, the, a lot of my teachers, they recognized that I had a lot of drive and ambition and I was like scoring really well. And, 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 you know, a lot of these teachers, like on their days off, they would take me around to like all these different competitions and, and they, they didn't enroll me in competitions, like for classes that I'd never even taken or that the school didn't even offer. Wow. And, and sometimes I would score really well, you know, on those tests, you know, whether it be like, um, like, like persons in high school, like I've never even taken accounting, but they put me in like a statewide accounting test and I won. So, so, I mean, just having exposure to, uh, to, to basically like, you know, winning, you know, um, for your smarts, you know, it, I mean, it builds confidence, you know, just like if you're an athlete and, and you're winning foot races, you know, you build your confidence in your, uh, in your physical abilities. Uh, if you're a student, you know, and you're like, you know, outperforming in terms of mental aptitude, you know, you're going to build confidence in what you know. Yeah. So. No, that's, I mean, it's a great response. And I, and I think like you said, a lot of it is could be in your DNA and, and over time you over, you know, you overcome these hurdles and whether you're, regardless of, who you are and where you come from getting on an offshore rig it can be extremely intimidating and for you to stand up for yourself and, and say hey you better you know it's me or, or some other worm you better pick me and we'll deal with it uh i think it speaks a lot to your success and and obviously what you've done and so i'm curious christine like you you obviously you went out there fast forward a little bit until you know you you got onto the emp side you worked your way up um and then to, and then lead into to what you're doing now yeah, so basically, uh, you know, after about five years in the field, um, I mean, I was working all the time. I mean, there were there were plenty of months, or I th there was even one year that I think I spent 25 days on average on a rig for the entire year. So, I mean, I was just like working my ass off. But, 
you know, but I also realized that, you know, I didn't have a life outside of work. Um, I was partying way too hard on those five days that I wasn't on the rig, you know, and then, and then it's like, I'm kind of like looking around and it's like, I'm seeing my, you know, younger sister getting married and having kids and doing all these other things. And I really just thought, you know what, I probably better get into the office before like I wake up one day and I don't like who I am. So, so, you know, I really just thought I better moderate a little bit and, uh, yeah. you know, and so, and so that's when I, I got on with Chevron um, I actually really loved my first role with them. I was uh, doing drilling, drilling optimization in their rock mechanics group. And uh, it was kind of like a, a, a niche position where it's like we would do um, formation characterization on some of their hardest wells. And then we would go, uh, go back and we'd recommend bits and different drilling practices to try to shave off time. You know, wow. because I mean, if it's like a you know, million a day operation, you know, I mean, if you can save, um, I mean, I remember there was one project, it was like, if I saved 15 minutes, it was $25,000 for each 15 minutes I could shave off of their drilling time. Wow. So, so, you know, but again, it's like, so, so I'm like working on these different basins all over the world and I'm getting to know about like, uh, like how those operations are, you know, and, and a lot of that, like, so having worked in the field all over the world. And then in that consulting position all over the world, you know, you really start to see the various challenges, kind of like what the um, cost metrics are. Um, and, you know, and, and you start to learn like why different companies want exposure in these various conditions. Like what's the size of the prize, right? Um, you know, but also it's like, you know, like every three years, I kind of need to do something new. Otherwise I get bored. So, yeah. so I started getting my MBA and it just so happened that that was when the financial crisis occurred. So, so like the fact that I was like looking at business metrics and things like that, when the financial crisis occurred, you know, I also started like playing around with my own money, um, of, like more heavy. So, so I was, you know, like investing and juggling like during the financial crisis, like while also doing my job and I did really well. Um, but but with that MBA, it's like when they asked me for my next assignment, I was like, well, I want to go, you know, to, to Chevron. I was like, well, I want to go on the business side, you know, because I want to, you know, see more. Like like when you're on the drilling end, you're really just focused on that well, yeah. you know, versus if you're on, you know, if you're on the business end of it, you're, you're doing more, you know, about uh, the economics and the basin, the build out, like how you rank in their portfolio. Um, why, like kind of what the hurdle rates are for advancing projects. Um, yeah. and, and so, and so, you know, then I'm like, I moved into the Nigerian and Africa group with Chevron and, you know, like, I mean, one thing I will say about the majors, like you just can't compare the quality of training that you get. So, so it's like when they put you into a new role, if you don't already know what you need to know, I mean, they're going to be, uh, putting you, um, you know, into, in, into select groups and, and, and they're going to be giving you like hardcore training for a week, a week or two, you know, and you're probably going to spend like maybe a whole month of the year just learning, you know, um, new skills to advance your, your career path. Um, yeah. But, you know, but eventually, uh, you know, things start kind of started getting stale. And then, you know, that's, that's how I ended up moving to Hess because, you know, one thing about Hess is, um, they do pay very well and I'm financially motivated. Obviously, I mean, 
Otherwise, I wouldn't be dabbling in the markets, right? Like I always <laughs> saw the stock market as as a way to like really get rich, you know. But then at the same time, it's like you can't put 100% of your energy into it while you're working. Otherwise, right. you're probably going to lose your job. So, so you kind of <laughs> have to go into less risky things so that you don't, you know, lose your ass while you're not looking. Um, you know, but you know, you're still learning, you know, the whole, the whole time, but, uh, but basically when the bottom fell out of the market in 2015, I mean, I was in an exploration strategy and planning group, you know, I mean, so in 2015, it's like all of a sudden, okay, well, you've got no budget for exploration. I mean, the majority of our team got laid off. And so, you know, and so I did too. Um, but you know, I had a good chunk of savings from having invested my entire career. And I also had um, rental property because I had also diversified there. And, and so I knew, you know, I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to take a year off, uh, just kind of um, relax a little bit. And then, and then we'll see, you know, what happens later, uh, you know. But, and, and what ended up happening, you know, 2016, I mean, the sector was still dead, right? So, so it was kind of like, I mean, when I would look uh, at opportunities within oil and gas, I mean, they just weren't there, you know, or it just wasn't what I wanted to do, you know? So, so I, you know, again, I just kind of like stayed focused on, on investing. And I ended up um, like buying a property after Harvey that had like five feet of water in it. And I kind of threw myself into remodeling that, you know, all the while kind of having my uh, stocks kind of like doing their thing. Like I was involved with a couple different investment groups where once a month, you know, we would get together and we would discuss um, different companies and, and metrics learnings. And so I was always like perpetually building my skins, my skill set and investing. And, and then pretty much um, in 2019, like I saw that the industry was swinging back up again. I yeah. saw that there were a lot of jobs that I was interested in. And I actually started, uh, pounding the pavement then, you know, I'm like, I'm like, you know, I was interviewing with, you know, BP and Chevron and Repsol, you know, pretty much all the deep water majors, because that's where I was interested in going. And everybody yeah. was telling me the same thing. You know, uh, we've got to increase our spin. We've been underfunded for all these years, you know, like it's going to come roaring back. And, and I was kind of in the queue for a number of jobs going into 2020. And then, bam, it's like COVID hit and the bottom fell out. And, uh, and, I'm, and I'm sitting there like watching my stock portfolio crash, which were primarily tech companies. And, you know, and then I see like what's happening with uh, the gas prices, you know, in, in, in these other companies. And I was just like, holy crap, you know, I'm like, I just knew I was like, I'm going to get rich. And I, and I like uh, bailed out of every mutual fund that I own. I like sold everything uh, and I just started like piling into oil and gas. Oh so, my gosh. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, yeah, like I, I was like literally buying within minutes of the bottom, you know, on, and, and I went in first to the companies that I felt like would survive the zombie apocalypse. Right. You know, because I didn't know how long, um, you know, we didn't know, right, in March when everything crashed, like how long COVID was going to last. So yeah. So not to cut you off, but I'm, I'm curious because this is really interesting. I think a lot of folks will be fascinated. So, so at what month were you, did you start doing this? And, and when you, cause you obviously had the foresight and understood macroeconomics to realize like, this is going to bounce back with a vengeance, I'm assuming. 
Um, talk a little bit about that, like the timing, when that was occurring, and then what gave you the foresight to take that risk? Because a lot of people look back and they're like, I don't know why I didn't do that. And But you were like, yeah, this is, I'm going to get rich. I know it. Um, I mean, so so pretty much, I mean, I was just looking at the levels. And and the thing is, is when things fall, they fall so much faster when they, when they climb. So really, all you had to do really was just be looking and watching. Um, and then in terms of like when to buy, it's like I basically like was watching uh, to see when the selling slowed down, like when the capitulation occurred. Uh, okay. and, and then, like I said, uh, then I jumped into what I felt like were the higher quality players. I mean, sure. having worked for Hess, I knew all about their success in Guyana. I knew that they would sell everything that they own in order to keep and capitalize on Guyana. So I saw that as a, as a safe bet. I want to say that I picked them up at like $25 a share. I'd have to go back and look at what um, the actual buy order was, but sure. you know, today they're 152. So, um, <laughs> and, and, you know, it's like, and Chevron, I mean, I'd also bought Chevron. Uh, I had um, like those were the first two that I really went in and, and then, uh, and then slowly over time, I started buying more. And, and I was, again, I was like, and, and everything was ratty, you know, things were like moving up and moving down. I mean, it was gut-wrenching. I mean, there were days that the volatility was so bad to the downside that I wanted to puke at the end of the day. But, you know, <laughs> but I knew that I just needed to like survive and hold on and things were going to like rip back to the upside. Yeah. So, so um, and I don't know if you remember this, but it's like the Texas Railroad Commission they had even had uh, like a live teleconference where they had different oil and gas companies come online and, and they were talking yeah. about whether or not they should put reparations, you know, into the, um, the, the prices of oil and how much they can sell or no, not reparations, prorations into the, uh, you know, in, into the, into the prices like, you know, for uh, barrels, you know, coming in and out of Texas and Oventive jumped on the call and they were against prorations. And and I looked at their company and I looked at their footprint and and I and I basically said and again it's confidence right the management was saying we don't need you to bail us out let market forces do their thing and the confidence on that call allowed me to buy Oventive at three dollars a share and now it's fifty so um, you know so so some of the things that I used as leading indicators they weren't. Um, things that you would just get off of looking at a stock chart or a balance sheet. Yeah, you know, like I said, it was it was like listening in on these calls, uh, various meetings where uh, the policy decisions were being discussed, advocated, you know, for and against, um, and 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 then really just looking at the companies, like what their exposure was. Like, so for instance, Neighbors Drilling, you know, it's one hundred eighty dollars a share right now. I was buying neighbors drilling at like $25 a share. And it's because like when I dove into their footprint and their contracts, I saw that they had huge contracts, you know, with uh, Saudi Arabia. And, and I was like, okay, I'm like, I'm like Saudi Arabia is going to allow them to survive. And, uh, you know, so again, it's just like, have like having a general knowledge of the industry and, you know, knowing uh, how these companies make money, where the margins are on their contracts. I mean, the longer your contract is, the better your borrowing rates and things like that. Yeah. So, um, 
you know, and, and what's what's truly funny is actually like the longer that my career progressed in oil and gas, the more I would be having like management discussions, uh, you know, with my team leads. And they they were kind of like getting to the point where they're like, you know, we just don't know what to do with you. You know, so it's like they're like, you've got this uh, services background, but then you also work in, you know, in drilling execution. And then now you're on the business end and, and they they would really not really know like what the next logical role was for me. But yeah. I think I found like my next logical role because <laughs> I mean, taking all, I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm like happy as a pig and shit, you know, like monitoring all these oil and gas companies. You know, right. I, mean, I would like listen to 30, 30 or 40 different um, earnings reports like every quarter. And and really, I'll be taking like key information, you know, like even even before I was heavily invested in the service companies, I knew that the service companies were going to be reporting growth like long before the operators were. Because when the service companies talked about where they were moving rigs, and and which areas are 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 growing you know which is another reason uh, you know we mentioned um earlier before you started the recording you know that i'm real bullish on latin america you know yeah. and it's because all of the service companies for like the last year and a half they're growing their activity in latin america at, at margins that are greater than north america okay. so um huh. you know so it's uh like i said it's just it's just truly exciting i mean it's Right. Like, I will say that the COVID crash until now, I mean, it's been like the Super Bowl of oil and gas investing, but for going on almost three years. Right. Well, and, and so again, like I, I think it's 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 fair to sit here and and you know, high five and cheer because obviously you, you the timing was great. You had the foresight, you took the risk, and here you are, like you said, you're you're pumped, you're happy, you're you're doing what you love. Um so kind of looking forward, I mean, what, what trends are you seeing in, in oil and gas equity markets right now? And then let's focus on the, on the U S um, I know you, we talked about Latin America, but I mean, where do you see operators um, deploying capital? I mean, obviously last year they paid out a bunch of debt this year may not be quite as fruitful, but there's still going to be enough free cash flow to either maybe keep drilling or increase their activity or, reward investors i mean what, what kind of narrative do you see coming i mean we've got some earnings calls that have come out where, where do you see this year kind of going and in, in, with that respect so, i mean it's not that i don't think that any north american company isn't going to do well um it's that i think that the momentum is shifting okay so, so i think in north america what we're going to see is we're you're going to see operators do whatever they need to do in order to maintain their production and because shale is like this short life cycle and they're rapidly coming off of the wells are rapidly coming off of their peaks, right? So they have to, this, it's a treadmill investment. You have to, you can never stop investing in order to maintain your production. And, and so, and so whatever rig count is currently there, you know, you might see it move up by 10 rigs or down by 10 rigs or whatever, but it's not going to like scale up 30% or whatever. But when you look at the Gulf of Mexico, I think there we're going to start seeing a lot of uh, a lot of growth. Um, I think we're going to start seeing a lot of exploitation drilling and exploitation plays. I mean, Talos Energy, who um, you know they're a large uh, mid-sized company in the Gulf of Mexico. They recently announced like two export uh, exploitation discoveries. Um, they're if they haven't already completed, then they're just about to complete a second appraisal well with BP. 
called Puma West, which is near Mad Dog. Um, yeah. I mean, I, and, and, and also like when I look at the service companies, I'm most bullish on the service companies that have a lot of stacked equipment that's offshore equipment, because I feel like that is going to start scaling up. I feel like that's going to be like the next leg for those companies, you know, more yeah. or less. So, um, so I, I think, I think for North America, you know, that's, that's where we're going to see the big, you know, flurry of activity. It's not going to be that the Permian and all these shell basins, the Bakken or whatever do bad. It's just going to be that they don't necessarily scale up. So, 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 so with, this, I, with, I feel like the scale is going to be offshore. No, and it's interesting because I've heard um, kind of just tr like very few discussions around that. And, and that seems to be something that's sort of a conversation that's brewing. Uh, but so you, so with that case, then you must be pretty bullish on oil prices because with, I mean, the amount of capital and everything else, I mean, for so long, you know, that was, I, I guess the case was, it was, you know, it was sexy to come on, on, you know, in unconventionals and dump a bunch of money in. But now with that being said, I mean, th does that support sort of the, the case then? Well, then we're probably likely to see elevated commodity prices, like oil and gas yeah, prices for I the mean, foreseeable future, which is, seems to be so a lot of, a lot of, I it, think, but. I think that oil could easily range trade between 80 and $120 for the next three to five years. So yeah. I feel like, uh, and, and obviously there's been this big pullback in oil prices um, this past year because people are, uh, the, the world is kind of struggling with this reopening story, right? And, yeah. and China staying closed for as long as it did, you know, it's kind of like thrown this mon monkey wrench into the system in terms of uh, what the supply demand uh, picture is going to look like. Um, you know, in Europe, their, uh, their living costs are up so great right now. Um, uh, there's actually like a lot of plants, like European plants that shut down because they just couldn't, you know, pay their utilities. Like even, um, so fertilizer, which is also uh, directly linked to natural gas uh, prices. Yeah. So uh, like, I think there's like eight fertilizer factories over the last two years, like shut down in, um, you know, in Europe. Yeah. But that actually ends up being bullish for fertilizer companies like in North America and South America and other areas of the world because, you know, so long as they can scale up, I mean, you can only go like one season without fertilizing before it impacts your crops. So, so I think a lot of people kind of skimped on their fertilizer this past year, but then now they're going to have to, uh, you know, keep scaling in. So, I mean, that'll, that'll be, you know, bullish for uh, natural gas prices. Um, you know, but, but really, you know, it's, it's kind of all about China and, you know, and what their activity is going to be. Um, but we've kind of like range traded with oil and gas with the exception of, of a period of time where the price of gas or they're sorry, oil, um, when oil, in my mind, when oil got above 90, um, in the summer, well, I guess it was March of last year up until June. I felt like at that point in time, oil had really like run too far because of Ukraine. And then, mm. and then it pulled back into this window that it's been rage trading in for the last two years. So we're kind of at the bottom of this, what I believe is going to be like this long-term trend window. And, mm. you know, where it sits right now, like 78, which in my mind, you might as well call it 80. Um, yeah. and, and I really feel like in, you know, in the years ahead, it's going to be this 80 to 120, you know, moving, moving, you know, up and down within that uh, range. 
because I mean, oil, you know, it's a cyclical um, commodity. It tends to uh, basically outperform from October until, um, you know, April, May. And then, and then it tends to like sell off to the bottom of its window. And then October, you know, kind of comes roaring back again. And if you look at commodity prices, you know, you see this sine wave effect that's occurring. So I believe that right now we're kind of at the bottom of this sine wave. And, okay. you know, and going into the spring, summer, you'll see it run back up and peak again. Um, mm. Like, I don't like it to go outside of the window because that's when just too much crazy stuff starts happening in the market. <laughs> Yeah. Um, like, you know, in hindsight, if I would have been a stock market genius, I would have sold everything that I owned again in June. But right. I didn't, um, you know, because a lot of a lot of companies, I mean, they're still not that trading at where they were in June of last year when the, when the Ukraine situation basically ran the price of oil up to, you know, one hundred and twenty dollars a barrel. Yeah. And, you know, And then even when you talk about technical analysis within stocks. You can go back and you can look at basically the RSIs, the MACDs on your technical charts, and you can see that when oil crashed during the financial crisis, those uh, key uh, levels were aligned with where um, the key levels hit again in June of last year. And, and I saw that occurring, and I did, I will say I did trim, you know, I, I think I maybe trimmed like 25% of what I own. It, like I just wish I would have trimmed seventy five percent of what I own. <laughs> it's always easy to look in the you know, rear view yeah, and exactly. say I should have done this. You, know, you can't beat yourself up, right? It's um yeah yeah. Know, I mean, I've done well despite despite not selling everything in June. So sure. Um, well, and then so, and just like every single day is a learning opportunity, right? So it's like when you see these things start to run and when you see them sell sell off, you know you've got to be asking yourself, you know, why is this occurring? You know, is this believable? I mean, is this speculation that is uh, that that's going to be able to uh, withstand like long term, you know, or not? Yeah. So, um, I, I feel you... like the only reason that oil isn't a hundred dollars a barrel now is because of all the SPR oil that got dumped into the market, you know, last year. So, so now that that's over, you know, now is where I feel like we're going to start, you know, reestablishing this new range. So, so just like how oil range traded, you know, between 80 and a hundred dollars a barrel, um, 2010 to 2014, yeah. you know, here's where I think oil starts rate change, rate, uh, range trading between 80 and 120 for the next, you know, three to five years, because, you know, even today, you know, you've got Darren Woods, you know, Exxon, they reported today and Darren Woods is like, Hey, the industry as, as a whole is still undercapitalized. Yeah. We've been undercapitalized for eight years. Even if they ratcheted up their budgets tomorrow by 100% and doubled their spend, the, the rigs aren't ready to come online. The teams aren't there. They're not trained up. Yeah. Um, and, and fields just don't operate like that. You know, there's, uh, there's a lag. Um, so, so, I mean, I'm, I'm very comfortable being invested in the sector, you know, for, you know, for a few more years. Um, you know, okay. and I mean, you know, but, but, you know, I'm monitored, right? Like if we, if the world did go into some gut wrenching depression, you know, yes, it could hurt the, the price of oil, you know, I mean, you know, but I mean, that's, that's part of what makes markets, right? That's part of being exposed, you know, making money is, is accepting the risk. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and again, that's kind of this, the whole kind of premise that I've been talking to some folks. It's like, unless there's a extreme demand destruction, the fundamentals only point in one direction showing that, you know, we're, we're, the market's tight and it's only going to get tighter, especially if China continues to increase their demand and, and, and everything else. And so I'm, I'm curious from your side of things with regards to China, and then I want to move into the Latin America thing, but would you say, is, is China's anticipated demand increase baked into the price of oil, or do you think it could continue to push it forward if they continue to, to, re, to open up and increase their activity and production levels and manufacturing levels and everything else? I, I don't think it's fully baked in yet. I, I think I think everyone uh, right now, these key, you know economists, you know they're uh, and and you know the EIA and uh, these consortiums that put out forecasts, they they're very backwards looking. And no one wants to stick their neck out and say how good or how bad it is. Because yeah. the more you stick your neck out, the more you might be wrong. So everyone tends to be very cautious on their forward guidance because they don't want to send the market into euphoria or panic. And, <laughs> right. and so, so it really, it's going to take the data, the month over month data uh, to, to, uh, for people to start to realize and actualize the situation that we're in due to eight years of understanding. Yeah. So. Gotcha. All right. Let's pivot a little bit. Um, I mean, we're ripping through time here. It feels like we've been on for two minutes. Uh, Latin America, you, you, you made some interesting comments before we started recording. You've got your eyes on the activity, what's happening down there. Give a sort of a, a synopsis as to, a, you know, what the current activity levels are and, and why it, why it excites you and, and maybe what you're thinking things are things are uh, going to happen as we move forward towards the end of the year? Yeah, so relative to the United States, uh, there's a lot of newer basins in Latin America. Um, you know, we all know about, you know, offshore Brazil. I mean, everyone, you know, has been super excited about offshore Brazil for a very long time, uh, but they con continue to explore down there, continue to find uh, new assets. And, and you can see FPSO rollout plans with Petrobras where they're planning on on basically rolling out a new FPSO every year for like the next decade. And what so, is that like, for those who don't know? That's uh, basically the biggest uh, Brazilian oil and gas company. Right, so, but you said PV, PV, PFP. Uh, PVR is their ticker. Yeah, PVR. but you said PVSO. They're releasing new PVSOs? No, no, FPSOs. Or FPSOs. The production and storage. Uh, so, so basically, if you don't have a fixed platform, if the water's too deep and deep water, You'll have an FPSO, and, oh, and that FPSO, is your floating okay. uh, storage and production unit. So gotcha. they're they're these giant tankers, these giant ships that that all the wellheads are basically streaming into, and then and then um, the tanker will actually pull up and they'll offload the oil, you know, in these uh, you know and and steam the ship wherever it needs to go, right? Gotcha, gotcha. So, okay. So you know, Brazil has got this huge rollout of FPSOs that's going to end up increasing its production. Guyana, which I mentioned a couple times, I mean, uh, you know, Guyana is basically you know bringing on also like a new FPSO every year. There's been since since 2015, uh, Exxon has discovered you know over 12 billion barrels of oil in in Guyana. There's wow. also about three to five billion that's been discovered right next door in Suriname. Um, like another company that I'm really bullish on is Apache because Apache owns like half of those uh, discoveries. So their partner oh, wow. is Total, so Total owns the other half. 
but they haven't FID'd one of them yet, but I believe that this year we're finally going to see our first FID. And, and then I think Apache might do what Hess has done. So, so Hess is the 30% uh, owner of all the, of the Exxon discoveries so far in Guyana. And, um, but Hess, since it's a smaller company with a smaller market cap, those barrels are much more impactful to their bottom line than they are Exxon. And so that's why I was buying Hess instead of Exxon. And you'll see, like, if you go look at the stock charts, you'll see that Hess has just been, it's been smoking it. It's probably the strongest stock chart, you know, since the, uh, since the crash. It's just, it's bare, every time there's been a pullback, it's barely sold off. And it's because everybody wants it. Like hand over fist, they're buying it. You know, it's trading at 150 right now. I mean, it could easily go to $200 by the end of the year. Wow. So just because of the sex there. And I mean, and the thing is, is like another thing that a lot of people don't realize is those deep water barrels are actually cheaper than permian barrels. So they're bringing those fields on for break even cost of between $25 and $35 a barrel, which, wow. in those, and, and, and really that's why people take the risk of drilling $150 million um, wells in deep water. It's because when you find the fields that work, they just blow everything away, you know, because mm. the pressures are so great and these reservoirs are permeable, they're porous. The, well, I mean, when you can find light crude oil out there, I mean, it's just, you, you know, you, you bring it on and it's just pumping money. I mean, it's, um, you know, they're, they're, you know, like it's like I said, it's it's a, it's something to be held. Let's just say that. Like when yeah. you start looking at the economics, and you know, I think um, people who are more uh, exposed to land operations, you know, I mean, they're thinking, wow, you know, we drill our wells for fifty thousand dollars, and why would anybody want to do that? But you know, the but the answer is the scale and the returns. You know, and even when you have like a ten percent borrowing cost, you know, a, a billion barrel. Feel when that comes online. I mean, it might be worth you know a net present value of of four billion dollars. So you know, even before you pump a, a single barrel of oil, just because of the long lifespans of these fields. I mean, the, and I, I told you like the the short cycle uh, fields, those wells. You know, like I said they they come online and then they basically you know start puttering off within a few months. But these deep water wells, they'll come online and they might stay at peak production for years. So right. it's just, you know, like I said, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of like, what's your, what's your horizon and all that. So, yeah. so I, I, like I said, I, I'm, I'm really excited about uh, Latin America. Um, but if you look at their shock, shock charts, you know, you'd ask yourself, well, you know, if it's great down there, like how come Petrobras, like when you look at the stock performance, there's actually been a decoupling of their stock when you compare it to like a Chevron and Nexon which is really the type of companies that you should be, you know, comparing Petrobras to. No. But what happened was the geopolitical risk and the strengthening of the U.S. dollar last year hammered all these emerging market companies that were, uh, you know, are, are international companies that aren't, you know, um, considered U.S.-based companies. And so, and so you can look at like, you know, Petrobras in Brazil, you can look at Equipatrol in Colombia, these are all major diversified oil and gas companies. Their stocks are significantly undervalued. So, I mean, whereas Hess or Hess has got like a PE multiple of over 20, you know, Exxon's got like a, a PE multiple of over 10. But then you look at these um, these international diversified companies that are making a lot of money. I mean, they might be trading with a PE multiple of three. And, and it's only because, in my opinion, 
it's because of what happened with the U.S. dollar last year. So Makes I think that there's okay. a huge opportunity with these uh, with quality international companies to to see a lot of stock outperformance in the year or two ahead because the U.S. dollar is actually starting to weaken now. And if that trend continues, the fund flows, the money is going to go toward these emerging market hedge funds. And, and, and they're going to be buying up the most quality companies, you know, in those uh, emerging markets. Um, and fund flows usually ends up being like 70% of the stock performance. So all you need is, is money to flow back to those funds. And, you know, and, and these are also the growth countries. So, so when you think about growth hedge funds, you know, are they going to look at the United States and think, well, the U.S. is going to grow a lot from here? These companies are going to necessarily make a lot more money from where they are today? Uh, no. I mean, they're going to be looking at Latin America, where the GDPs are growing and the infrastructure is growing and the production is growing because they have the manpower and the, and the low cost of, of capital and whatnot. So, yeah. um, so, so that's why I said I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about, you know, Latin America. I mean, like 40% of my portfolio is, um, you know, is, is focused on Latin America, you know, but oh. I still believe in North America. I just don't believe that the momentum is going to be the same. Gotcha. So, you know, and, and I'm right over red, right? I'm aggressive. So <laughs> I, mean, I tend to be invested, you know, aggressively invested as well. So. And you know what, I, I, I can appreciate it. There's not a lot of people that would stick their neck out and, and commit like you have been. Um, I'm curious. So, and I want to talk a little bit about Brickster Capital. Is that Describe, I mean, are, are you, do you offer like, you know, are you a service or is that just your own entity and you just trade for yourself? Or, I mean, talk about like, are you offering advice or offering to, to manage wealth or like, what do you, aside from just making yourself or investing for yourself? I mean, do you do anything like on the financial services side or? Yeah. So, so really, I mean, Brickhouse Venture Ventures, which uh, was an entity that I created uh, initially just to kind of manage my, um, my real estate investments. Okay. And, and, um, like one thing that I didn't mention was, uh, in 2020, uh, so, so actually in 2019, I started liquidating a lot of my real estate because I thought I was going to go back to work full-time in oil and gas. So, so I'd had, you know, I had been raising capital that I had in the markets and, and I still had, uh, like I basically had two properties uh, in 2020 when, when COVID hit, you know, I had, I had a property that I lived in that was like fully paid off. And, and I had, you know, a house that I was uh, leasing out that my tenants had three years under their lease. And uh, so in 2020, when that second dip occurred, um, like basically oil went, went up, right. But then Omicron or whatever came out and, and the stock markets like started coming down again. So when I saw that that second dip, I, I was just like, oh, my gosh, you know, I need more money because this thing is going to rip to the upside again and I want to capture it. I had actually sold my house. So in, uh, you know, and I moved into like a cheap townhouse so that I could deploy as much of that money as possible into the into the markets. And, wow. and the timing ended up just being perfect because I think I put it on the market uh, like the first week of October. I had multiple offers within just a few days. Yeah. I had that house sold by the end of the month and I had all of the money invested by November 5th or November 6th and November 9th, which just so happens to be my birthday was the day that they announced the first vaccine. And that morning I woke up a quarter of a million dollars richer, like 
just that event was was the catalyst for like a re-rating um wow that uh so so again i mean like i said when, when i say red over red aggressive i mean like i would have uh i would have sold anything that i own <laughs> raise more money to go into oil and gas stocks <laughs> no kidding that's an unbelievable um so let, let's talk content a little bit because you are you've got a rather large following on especially Twitter. You're very active. You put out a lot of good information. I read one this morning talking about H, um, you know, Helmer campaign, HP, talking about, you know, their sort of profit margin that they're looking for. I mean, you're just constantly feeding good information. Um, what what's the goal? Cause I mean, obviously it's it's likely for you a source of information, but also providing information. I mean, why do you do it? Because it takes time and arguably it takes time away from you watching the, the tickers all day. I mean, it doesn't really take time away from me watching the tickers, but um, I mean, I've done well and I've wanted to put information out to the investment community to allow other people to basically benefit off of what I knew. Awesome. So, so I went from like, I had no followers on Twitter, you know, in 2020 and also like, so StockWits is another place that I uh, post a lot. Like I, I'd never even heard of StockWits. You know, it was just that I was always talking about oil and gas stocks to one of my other friends. And, and he was like, you really should be on stock. Tickets. So, so I got on there and, and yeah, I just, uh, people, you know, I mean, small investors, you know, they're, they're always out there seeking information. I mean, they wanted help and confidence. And, and, and so, so I pretty much was just always talking about, um, like what I'm seeing and what I'm invested in and why I believe in this. And, wow. and that's how I've grown, um, you know, this big following. And I mean, on Twitter, uh, it, you know, it's actually amazing because I mean, I've, I've got some journalists now who follow me. Yeah. Um, I've got hedge fund managers who follow me. Uh, there's, wow. there's an exploration play for Guiana that I am like super bullish in. I've been talking about it for two years uh, I did a one-hour Twitter Spaces on that opportunity, and I think I've already had like close to eight thousand people tune in and listen to me ramble about it for an hour. <laughs> what? So, <laughs> Christine, I mean, people just is... want to know, right? And I mean, well, I actually yeah. had like a couple private offices. They they contacted me afterward, and they're like, "Yeah, we had a team meeting after we listened to your talk." You know, so wow. so in terms so i'm currently not monetizing you know any of my um research you know i'm just kind of like putting it out there for free um well, there's know, something I, to be said for basically trying to help other people like i mean i feel like that kind of comes back to you i was so, gonna say i'm i'm a huge believer in karma and i feel like and 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 what i really can respect your answer because the answer is basically you're just you're doing it to help others and it's very selfless right you see a lot of folks on social media you know, have their self-esteem wrapped up in how people respond to whatever it is they're posting. And it's, you know, it's more to, you know, get high on their own supply, but you generally just enjoy providing information to help others, which I think is tremendous. And, you know, I mean, the universe will reward you 10 times over. And so I, I, I can appreciate that as someone on the sideline who watches, uh, you know, your, the information that you post and hopefully you can help others generate a little bit of extra money or, or even it's wealth. Also for that like matter. making your thinking visible, right? Yeah. So, so it's like, if I see that there are some key uh, fundamental metrics that I think are going to drive something higher by me putting it out there to the masses, right? If there's a flaw in my logic and someone else comes back to debate that, you yeah. know, like, you know, so there's also a learning process. I mean, yes, you know, sometimes you get trolled, 
You know, I mean, I, I have certain people that will like hate me if I say anything bad about their stock. Like, like for instance, there were a couple companies that I sold out of last year because I was shifting capital somewhere else. Now I've got like a group of 10 people that are in those stocks that like routinely troll me, you know? <laughs> so how, <laughs> they so take it, they just take I, it personal, you know? <laughs> I, you know, and, and Christine, I suspect that you don't give a rat's tail about people who troll you. You just seem like you've, you, you just have too much confidence to care, but how do you deal with it? Does it bother you? Do you just laugh and keep going? I mean, does it, I mean, does it, it kind of hurt me? It bothers me when I find them going on to like, like trying to get hold of Facebook photos or Instagram. Like, like I've had to make everything else private because, because these people are like constantly like trying to lurk through you yeah. know, other media channels. And, you know, and it's like, even so it's like, see, some of my followers on Twitter or, you know, like they want to follow me like on LinkedIn and other, at these other places. And I'm, and I'm really just like, no, you know, I'm like, Facebook is for family and friends. Yeah. LinkedIn is for other people in the oil and gas industry. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, I'm like, I'm like, Twitter's for stock talk, you know, like stay on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that is so cool. Well, look, so I have to ask then, and I'm, I imagine you're not, but you're, you're not on TikTok, are you? No, no, you no. haven't gone on to that. There's only so much stuff I have time for, right? It's like <laughs> I have people saying all the time, "Oh, you need to go on Reddit." I'm just like, I'm just like, I can't be on all these other channels, you know. I'm, I get I it. Pick I, the one that has the biggest microphone, and that's yeah. the one that I'm going to be on. I, I, yeah, mm -hmm. I, I'm. I'm a believer in that too. It's just if you if you focus on one and grow one. It, I mean, again, it depends on the objective, right? But for what you do, I think it, it seems like you've got the right. Uh, the right recipe there. So the last thing I'm going to ask you, and it's more of, you know, zooming out and not necessarily talking stocks or, you know, companies and stuff. But I mean, as someone who's been in oil and gas and, in, you know, let's call it energy for a long time, do you have any core beliefs around energy that you've changed your mind on over the last few years? And, and not necessarily on the investment and stuff like that, but just, you know, with someone who's been in oil and gas, uh, obviously provided a great career for you. And, you know, and now there's a push to, to move away from fossil fuels for, you know, a bunch of reasons. Does anything sort of come to mind on your philosophy around energy in general? I mean, for me, the, the biggest issue with, with energy is these cycles. We've got to figure out a way to like lessen these peaks and these troughs. Yeah. Um, you know, and another thing that I'll say, you know, being on social media talking about these oil and gas companies i mean some of these companies are truly hated because certain investors maybe they were in those stocks uh, in in 2014 and then they just lost so much money like in 2015 when the bottom fell out of the, the market that it's almost like uh you know in addition to workers having ptsd from being laid off there's investors who have ptsd from having lost so much money, you know, and so much respect for, for the companies. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a lot of companies that exist today that shouldn't exist. You know, I mean, for instance, in the Permian, we have way too many companies out there. They need to consolidate, you know, they're, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, and then we need to figure out a way to, and, and maybe that way is, is having more, uh, you know, long dated contracts so that you know that, you know, the bottom isn't going to fall out, you know, in five or six years and you can, you know, maintain your, work, your workforce. But I mean, it's like, you know, having been in the industry as long as I have, I mean, I think I saw more or less like three downturns, but this last one was definitely the worst because yeah. this last one just lasted so long. 
I mean, they, it's just like squeezed the lifeblood out of a lot of people. And I mean, and I know really good people who left the industry, you know, yeah. I, mean, I know directional drillers that are my age and like I'm 45. Right. So I know, I know directional drillers that are like in their mid forties that they now have like chimney sweep companies because, because they're like, you know what, we just, we can't take going back into the field again. Um, it, it's, it's, it's too long. It's too hard to basically rebuild yourself, you know, yeah. you get wiped out. And if you have a family that's dependent on your, uh, your steady income, I mean, it just, it just makes that, you know, all, all the much more harder. And, 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 you know, it's like even, you know, even people that were on the operation side, you know, I mean, I know oil and gas, you know, economists who, I mean, pretty much they got pushed out like during the downturn. And I mean, talk about like a self-esteem hit, you know, yeah. I mean, it's like, it's, it's one of the worst feelings in the world to, to get fired, to get laid off. I mean, it's probably not as bad as getting divorced or, you know, getting dumped, <laughs> but I mean, but it's like, it's like right up there. Right. I mean, yeah. it's, it's like the biggest ego kick that you can take, you know? So, um, and, and so, and even, even now it's like, you know, I keep talking about how it's going to be higher for longer because of eight years of, un, you know, underinvestment. And, and I just keep thinking, we've got to figure out, going, going into this next boom period, we've got to figure out a way to dampen what's on the other side of that. Yeah. Because this industry cannot keep losing people that have, you know, 10, 15, 20, you know, 25 years of experience. You know, I mean, we had... Before this crisis, we already had like a, a problem with an aging workforce. You know, I mean, Chevron used to have to talk about this all the time. You know, how their average employee was 50 years old, you know, yeah. and guess what? That was 15 years ago. <laughs> so, so how much competency have all these companies lost now that their average worker had over the last 10, 10 or 15 years has retired? You know, yeah. I mean, we can't keep expecting 70 year olds to come out of retirement to uh, to train, you know, a, a new workforce. Up. And it's and I kind of feel like that might be where the industry is right now. Um, <laughs> like really yeah. hoping that, you know, these 60 and 70 year olds come back to work, um, you know, and, I, and and there's all these 40 something year olds like me who uh, they kind of started something else. Yep. And, and, and so, you know, it's going to take a whole lot of money to try to get them back. If you can even get them back, you know, I mean, like, like, for instance, me, like I wouldn't mind taking on some consulting projects. If those consulting projects um, added value to me in a way that I could trade it, you know, so like, let's say uh, someone wanted me to do like a regional benchmarking study you know, on, on various companies, you know, in Latin America or in Brazil or in Argentina or wherever, like I would, I would take on that work because I would be looking for undervalued players that I don't already know about. Yeah. And, uh, Interesting. But, but in terms of like me going back to work full time, I mean, why? I don't need it. Like I make more money on my own investing in, in, in the sector um, and looking for these, you know, big macro trends than, than if I was like sitting at a, uh, at a desk you know, for an operator uh, and having all my focus on whatever they didn't, they didn't need me to do, you know, because then my thought process would start getting siloed, you know, along what they need. And, and I would miss things that I need to be picking up by, by listening to, to the sector as a whole, which is yeah. kind of like what I do now. Right. It's like, it's like, I, I'm, um, 
Like I'm listening to earnings calls and I've been doing this like for the last three years of companies that I'm not even invested in, but I'm using them as like bellwethers, you know, and I'm getting leading indicators from all of them, you know, what they're saying to like build a general thesis. Hmm. So, no, that's fascinating. Well, it seems like you've obviously had a heck of a run and, and hopefully things go keep going well for you. Um, so, you know, again, so we, you mentioned Twitter, I'll uh, put the link in the show notes to your Twitter handle, which is awesome. It's she drills. Um, you know, it's just, you know, very much who you are, I think in a nutshell. And uh, Christine, this has been an absolute amazing uh, conversation. Thank you for all the information. What closing last words, is there anything that you'd like to relay, assuming everyone in the oil and gas or even energy sector is listening right now? What, what would you tell them? I mean, I would just say, build your acumen, right? So, so the reason I've done so well in the oil and gas space is that I've been constantly curious throughout my entire career, constantly trying to take on new roles, um, you know, outside of my you know, what I was currently doing, you know, constantly trying to work in new regions, um, you know, moving, moving from one career ladder to the next career ladder. And, and so really it was like uh, developing this um, general skill set that, that, you know, when basically when the world come, came crashing down, you know, in 2020 with COVID, I mean, truly, you know, crisis creates opportunities. And yeah. so if you have that general awareness, you know, when you see these things happening, you know, that, you know, like that's when you can really capitalize on it. And like, this isn't going to be the last uh, oil cycle, unfortunately. I, I hope that it is. I hope that the next one isn't nearly as bad, but yeah. I do believe that, um, you know, there's a boom, you know, there's a bust. I mean, feast and famine. I mean, like that's the one thing that you do learn coming into this industry. It's feast and family, you yep. know, and, and it's really like what you do with yourself in those, um, those downturns, you know, like a lot of people will go back and they'll get a second degree during those downturns. You know, I, I know a that's lot what of, I did. Uh, <laughs> yeah. did. Yeah. Like I, I mean, you know, drilling engineers and then now all of a sudden they're studying geology or, or they're getting an MBA. Um, I mean, cause it's really those, those uh, having a diverse skill set. You know, it's going to allow you to get a job or, or reposition yourself or even with investing. I mean, it's, I mean, really learning is the game, is the name of the game, you know, yeah. um, and, and you're going to have to do that in your own time. You know, right. you're going to have to sacrifice some weekends. You're going to have to sa sacrifice nights. It's going to be hard to juggle, but, you know, uh, it also just kind of comes down to like what your life goals are, right? Exactly. No, that's, uh, that's great advice. And, and I encourage everyone out there to, to connect with Christine, follow her on Twitter and LinkedIn, if she'll allow you to. Um, and again, thanks for joining me today, Christine. But and last but not least, for the listeners, I'd like to quickly close out by sharing some information about a new partnership we've landed with the oil patch. They're your daily energy news fix in five minutes or less. They just came out with the newsletter. It comes to you daily. It's actually it's, it's comical. It's got a lot of good information on there and, and it's written by people who are in the know. Um, they're in the weeds day in and day out. Think hustle or morning brew for, for oil and gas and energy. So please do them a favor and subscribe using the link in the show notes or simply go to the oilpatch.co. Christine, thanks again. And for everyone out there listening that everyone deserves access to energy and we is greater than me. Thanks everybody.
Thanks again for listening to another episode of Wicked Energy with JG. And look, if you or your organization wants to start a podcast, please visit my website and sign up for a free guide on how to start a successful podcast. Once you get through it, let me know if you have any questions or getting started. Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Peace.